0: And I talked to my plastic surgery advisor from medical school and he's like, oh, just do ENT. It's just like plastics So the head and neck, which if you're a plastic surgeon is probably true. But if you're not a plastic surgeon, <laughs> it's actually not true at all.
1: So ladies and gents, to hear this Liz, all around the world, welcome to the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. We are super excited for this month. Of uh, April to have the leading ladies in rhinoplasty around the world. And kicking off this month is a lady who comes all the way from the United States of America. And we have to say thank you very much to Pentax Loops who've made this podcast possible. Pentax Loops are saving my neck and I think they might save your neck as well. So (laughs) if you listen right to the end of the podcast, I'm going to give you the link to click on and send a message to an ask for a great discount on Pentax Loops. But first, you have to listen to this person. So I'm very excited for today because this person we've got who's going to be speaking to us is, it's quite astounding. She was one of our chief judges at the World Rhinoplasty Day. She's the facial plastic section editor of the Laryngoscope Journal. She's a professor at Harvard Medical School and she's a mom with three kids. So Robin, Lindsay, welcome to the show.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Cameron. Great to be here. So
1: Robin, it's just great. I've met you a couple of times and I'm just enthralled by your, um, your enthusiasm for rhinoplasty, but also the professional way that you go about um, rhinoplasty. So I know we're going to be chatting about some rhinoplasty things later, but I, I just want to kind of get in. How, how, what makes Robin Lindsay, Robin Lindsay? How did you end up being a professor at Harvard? Where did this whole journey start for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you never know where life's going to take you as much of a planner as most of us are. Um, I think you have to you kind know, of enjoy the journey. So I grew up in Virginia. My dad was in the the Navy and we lived overseas in Japan for a while and then came back to um, Virginia where I went to undergrad in medical school. And I think, you know, we all have those experiences where the first time we're in the operating room, we're like, this is where I have to be. Um, and I sort of started on that kind of journey actually through orthopedics and then general plastics. Um, with hand surgery and really loved sort of the anatomy and the nuance of that. And I, as chance would have it, ended up having to do a plastic surgery rotation um, because orthopedics was full. And I was like, this is even better. Like you get to do the face and body, and this is fantastic. And, you know, I spent a lot of the end of medical school doing, you know, sub eyes in different locations at UT Southwestern and others. Like, this is what I want to do with my life. Um, but I had gone through what's called the Health Professional Scholarship um, Program for medical school, which is where the military pays for um, your medical school education. In return for that, you owe them time. And so at that time, the integrated plastics programs were new in the U.S., um, and they were not an approved pathway of training for, um, for um, folks who had done this pathway. And so they are like, nope, you can't do that you got to either do ENT or general surgery. And I talked to my plastic surgery advisor from medical school and he's like, Oh, just do ENT. It's just like plastics So the head and neck, which if you're a plastic surgeon is probably true, but if you're not a plastic surgeon, <laughs> it's actually not true at all. So I was a little bit of a rude awakening starting residency, having learned a lot about, you know, facelift and cleft of the palate and brush reconstruction, you know, et cetera, and not a lot about the temporal bone. Um, so you know, I clearly knew when I started residency that I was going to, you know, end up doing, um, you know, either, you know, general plastics or facial plastics. And so that's sort of what, you know, led me into that field. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to do a fellowship um, at Mass Eye and Ear, um, many years ago now. And, and I think, you know, that experience was mostly in, you know, facial nerves, but really high volume outcomes research. And when I returned to the Navy after that experience, um, because I still owed them some time. know, I was able to sort of take what I've learned from outcomes research and then adapt that to to rhinoplasty because young, healthy people in the military and their family members can't breathe their nose and they're concerned with the way they look. So I think that was sort of, you know, I fell into that um, niche because those were kind of the patients um, available and that's just kind of continued to to grow over time, which has just been a, you know, a fantastic, um, you know, areas. I think everyone who... (laughs) is in this field, you know, really so much values um, this patient population and what we get to do every day.
1: So now as, as one of the leading ladies, how was it for you as a woman getting into this in a way, very male dominated rhinoplasty world?
0: Yeah, I mean, it is very um, (laughs) male, you know, dominated. And I, and I think you just really have to sort of enjoy, you know, you know, what you do. I think, you know, I was, you know, probably, you know, one of the few, you know, female, you know, residency and residents in otolaryngology at the time. And I've, you know, been out of residency training for over, you know, 15 years now and, you know, graduated from medical school in the late 90s. And, you know, at that time, there weren't a lot of females going into to surgery um, and certainly not a lot of kids, ki- females who decided to have kids during um, residency. Um, so that's <laughs> another. So talk to me about um, you know, experience. that. I mean,
1: we, I can still remember, we had our third baby um, a week before my final written exams of ENT, but like, I can at least get away. I'm not the mom. How, how do you handle having kids during your residency?
0: I think you have to have a lot of support. My husband's also a physician, but I think, you know, my parents and my sister certainly helped out a ton. And I think you just, you I don't know, looking back at it now, I'm not exactly sure how we did it, but it was certainly the right thing for us to do. And I'm like, you know, thrilled to have the three. And I had one, my oldest, who is now 17, I had, while I was a resident during my research block, um, <laughs> very well-timed. And I had my daughter six days after I graduated from residency, also well-timed. And then I had my youngest, uh, who's now um, 10 after I um, completed um fellowship. So I think you have to sort of pick those times in your, you know, training that um, could make it work, but you still need a, you know, a ton of support from, from everyone.
1: And, and Robin, how do you balance your family life with your professional career? I'm specifically we, asking this question more for the female listeners, because I just feel there's such a need for an encouragement for women who have this dual role of having to try to run a home And also be out there working at the same time. So the question is really asked towards somebody who's listening to this saying, how do I actually do this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, the way I try to advise like our, you know, medical school students and, you know, residencies who are, you know, already in a surgical subspecialty are considering that. I mean, I think you have to realize that there's no perfect time as, you know, the men in the audience know as well to have kids. There's never a 20 year time period where you get to like take off from your life to um, to have them. So you're always going to have to, you know, balance what you're going to be able to do from work and what you're going to be able um, to do at home. And I and I think you have to, you know, be gracious with yourself because I think most of us in this field particularly are very much perfectionist. Um, and you have to realize that you're not always going to be able to do <laughs> everything all the time as well as you want to do it. And you just have to be kind of gracious with yourself and those, um, you know, around you. And You know, and I think what I've kind of learned over time is that it's important to, you know, give yourself a little bit of time with the kids. You know, we all work really hard. We work long hours. There's so many days where you can't leave, you know, the OR and you just can't leave work to be home for dinner or to be at the bus stop. And I think as you progress through your career, if you can sort of organize your schedules so that, you know, there's a day every you know, a week or so where you're the one doing the school drop off or you're the one doing the school pickup and, you know, giving yourself that time and flexing your schedule. And you're actually not working less, but you're able to flex your schedule enough so you're not missing those really important kind of moments for your kids all the time. And at least you know what it's like to be at the bus stop. You've seen the other moms that pick up and you're not this mystery person who works all the time. And I think those are the types of things. And getting ready to have one heading off to college, you realize how quickly those years go by and those are really those priceless, um, you know, memories that you, you hold with you. So I think it's just a matter of, you know, when you know you have that person that you want to have kids with is that, you know, just fitting it into like your schedule, but realizing that, you know, just putting off and putting off is not always the right thing to do because there's never any, it doesn't get easier when you're an attending or a more senior attending, you know, it's always, it's always work.
1: Well, that's awesome, eh? And, and what do you do when you're not working and you're not hanging out with the kids and your hobby?
0: <laughs> well, I've been thinking a lot more about this that I need a hobby because as the kids are getting older and I no longer have like the three elementary school kids that you have, <laughs> you realize that they don't need as much from you. Um, and they're sort of, you know, slightly, you know, starting to distance, um, you know, themselves. And, you know, you sort of have to value that time when everyone's together even more. So I certainly need to kind of, um Think about more um, hobbies as we move through, but um you know in the winter time, um I did not grow up um in the north, and neither did my husband, so you know the cold weather was sort of a bit of a transition um you know we've been in Boston for over ten years now, so've adjusted, but my husband used to say I had seasonal effective lazy disorder, and that in the winter time I would just like sit by the fireplace, read and like not go outside because it was so cold. So he really encouraged me to like get out and we started skiing and it was a great family activity. And so I have to say that's for the winter months, which from here is really from, you know, late November all the way through April actually, um, is that, you know, skiing is a great way to kind of get outside, especially in the long winter months and it's bright and it's active and it's something that you can do with the whole family. So that's really what I do through the the winter and the summer months we move more into sort of gardening and water skiing and hiking and that kind of thing so and try to stay busy
1: there's no there's no snow skiing in South Africa that's for sure (laughs) 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 now Robin I want to change direction slightly I'm so intrigued is with your role at the laryngoscope tell me a little bit more about what you do there and how you ended up being in that position
0: yeah, so I've been in that role for a couple of years now, and I think, you know, you usually start off with the journals, um, you know, just by starting to be a reviewer. And so I think when you when you start getting reviewers and we're always looking for really ex- excellent reviewers from all over the world um, to review for us. And, you know, and it actually is pretty challenging to get really good reviews and and I think so many you know when you're submitting your manuscript so many hours of work have gone into that we want to make sure that we're giving each and each manuscript their due. And so a big part of that is really having excellent reviewers. And so I think it really starts out that when when you're asked to review something Um, one saying yes, (laughs) Um, you know, and and then, you know, giving um, the respect to that manuscript that you'd want for something that you had had submitted as well. And so I think you start off doing that. And I think the way in which they kind of pull to, you know, the other roles of the journals um, are really looking at sort of those excellent reviewers who've really kind of time and time again said yes and not declined and really submitted excellent reviews. So, um, I think that's the way I eventually um, progressed to the kind of associate, um, you know, editor position. And it, it's been really fun because you get to see everything that really comes into the, um, into the journal. You get to see what everyone writes as, you know, reviews and kind of the way their take on things. So it's really a great kind of insider look um, into our field.
1: And so of your day, I mean, if you're in your week, how much time are you spending in the clinic seeing patients? How much time are you spending in the in the OR or the theater and how much time are you spending with a laryngoscope?
0: Yeah, so I typically operate um, two to three days a week. So I operate every Monday, Wednesday and some Fridays. Um, and then um, our clinic typically changed a little bit because of COVID as we've tried to space things out. But I'm typically in the clinic sort of one long full day um, a week. Um, and then I have a day a week that's sort of um, dedicated to, which is <laughs> today, that's um, dedicated to more academic endeavors. Um, and I, and, I, and so that, you know, I think that's for kind of younger viewers is that really, you know, take advantage of that time. And it's easy to like have, oh, sure, I'll see that one patient or go to the OR. And you have to do that early on. But when you can start kind of really valuing that time and protecting it, um, it, it's very useful. And so, you know, a lot of the the um, editorial um, stuff gets done there, though. I mean, things are submitted throughout the week. So it's it's probably almost like every other day or so that you're sort of online on the um, Scope, you know, website, um, you know, looking at the reviews, finding reviewers, so. Um,
1: and we're not chatting to Travis. He to said though. that there's just been a plethora of more submissions to them because of COVID, people have not got time to actually write up all these articles. Have you guys found the same?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. We saw a ton of submissions sort of, you know, a month or two after both of us were going into quarantine. And so there was a kind of a huge uptick um, at that time and probably throughout the summer. I would say right now, I think that and I haven't looked at the exact stats, but just sort of a you know brief overview of how many we're sending out for review now. I feel like it's kind of, there's been a little bit of a downturn probably as folks are going back to work. Um, you know, typically February is a really busy time for laryngoscope because of the meeting in January that if you have an abstract that's subject, uh, accepted or a poster presentation, then you have to submit that to um, laryngoscope. And so for people who have done that, you, they're all submitting it In January, And so there's a hugely a huge uptick in February um, from that. And I didn't see as much of an uptick um, this year.
1: Okay. And now Robin, I was going to chat to you a little bit about World Rhinoplasty Day. So this was quite a kind of unique event that the South African guys put together. Um, What are some of your thoughts of being, being a judge because we really wanted to make this a good scientific meeting because we found that there's been a lot of people kind of, doing what Rod Rorick loves to say of saying everyone's world famous on their own website. So we felt that it would be good to have these people head to head, but do it in like a fashion of a sports event where we've got judges calling it. And it was really great to have you guys and I'm going to be speaking to Barman soon as well. Um, How did you find the level of the event and how do you think we should possibly change it, etc.?
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought the event was incredible, kind of on multiple fronts. I think, one, just I think all of us were just so hungry to, like, just see each other and engage in another way. And so, you know, after being kind of in quarantine and not being able to do our typical, you know, rounds of meetings every year. And so I think, one, it was just very fulfilling from that standpoint. And then I think it really did sort of, you know, increase the caliber of, you know, of, you know, what we expect from rhinoplasty around the world. And I think it also is a forum to let, you know, folks know that, you know, you know we're all you know reading journals and doing this but like there's just folks that you just don't come across like as commonly and so I think one of the things that I really enjoyed um in going through and reviewing the video is is that you know as we broke this up internationally from different countries and different regions you really were able to see these great up-and-comers um you know you, you definitely saw the senior people that you know and love watching their talks and have so much respect for but you also saw these great people who you just see right as the you know the future of rhinoplasty as well so I thought it was a great forum from them and then you know so many of them really just like, you know, knocked it out of the park. And I almost feel like if you're doing this again, that you should almost have like a um, you know, new, com- you know, like some sort of award because for like the, like, you're none of them are newbies that are presenting. They've all been doing this for a while because they truly do have something to say, um, you know, but sort of like an outstanding, you know, new topic or something like that. Just to like, I felt like there were people that I wanted to give awards to that weren't fitting into those like top three, but I so wanted to um, acknowledge as well.
1: Yeah, and I said to you guys, we're not going to have a tie. We have to make the call. So that's actually quite interesting because in, in May, of, so the, the schedule for the Rhinoplasty podcast, I want to always put it out too soon, but in May, I've got it as the young guns. So I've got five of these guys from around the world who aren't like necessarily yet the rock stars of Rhinoplasty, but they're going to be speaking. And then after that, we're moving to some senior guys. And so it's, it's quite nice to kind of have a platform where we can have so many varied speakers and we don't always listen to the same brilliant guys speaking, eh?
0: And I think that's so important. And I think that's both for the younger men and women. And you were asking earlier about, Leo you know, getting your start in, you know, rhinoplasty and as a woman. And I think, you know, one thing that helped me is, you know, just really getting into the outcomes, you know, measurements very early on so that you have something to say and you start publishing and get your name out there other ways as well. But it also really takes sort of sponsorship, both from, you know, men and women to say like, you know what, she really should be there and have something to say. And I remember, you know, several years ago, and you know, in the U.S. at the rhinoplasty meeting, you know, Theta Contis has always been a huge proponent um, of women within the AFPRS um, in the U.S. And it was really like there was like two um, two females. I think it was, you know, she and Roxana on the rhinoplasty. She's like, guys, like. We can't have a four day meeting with two female speakers. And so, you know, back then, you know, then Lisa Ishii and I were asked to like come join. And it really is like us in like a sea of dark suits. It's like we really all should be wearing a bright color. So we stand up and, you know, and I think that was, you know, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago now. And so really, I think we've taken off from there. And certainly, I think as we look in the meetings more recently, um, you know, there are more female speakers, but I think there, we really have like, um, you know, ways to go, you know, on that front and even sort of these big and uh, multi-institutional or, you know, you know, manuscripts or position papers that are, you know, put out through, um, you know, plastic surgery or facial plastics or, oculoplas- you know, like we really need to look at sort of, you know, the demographic of that to ensure that we're, you know, including folks internationally and, you know, of all different backgrounds and, and gender. So um, I think that's something that is certainly on the forefront of many people's um, minds, especially um, now, but we sh- should take a look at it in our own field as well. So I think events like this that help to sponsor, you know, women and up-and-comers is just fantastic.
1: Yeah, I know. It's fantastic. And it's great to speak to you about like the groundbreaking work you guys have done. But tell me, when have been the times where the flame's been low? What have been the hard times for you as a woman in rhinoplasty?
0: You know, I, you know, I think we all go through those struggles where you've like worked really hard on the manuscript and then you submit it and you get these reviews back and you're like, wait a second, you know, and it's just like, you know, and it's a little, you know, low and you have to like, oh, this is so discouraging. Or you submit grants and then it, you know, it's not funded and so much time and effort, um, you know, goes into those projects. And I think that's where you just kind of have to like dig deep and just say, all right, we're just going to keep pushing forward and eventually, um, you know, it's going to happen. And and I think also, you know, when you're looking at sort of the reviews of, you know, manuscripts and grants and things, like if you have mentors that you can talk to about that, that can really sort of advise you, you know, a lot of times, you know, some of the, sometimes they're not, but a lot of times the critiques are, you know, very helpful. And if you can say, okay, well, this is where I can move forward and make this even better, um, you'll become even stronger in the long run. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think you need to kind of separate a critique from yourself. They're not criticizing you as a person, it's just.
0: Right, but it feels personal when you first comes back and then you have to like, yes. have to like take a deep breath and then put it down for yeah, a yeah. day or two and then re-engage and then it's the right time to look at it.
1: So Robin, I know you also wanna share a little topic with us. Um, please feel free to uh, share your screen and I remind you that because quite a few people won't be able to see the YouTube video, they'll be listening to you. So okay. just okay. bear that in mind whilst you chat.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the topics, you know, you asked us to kind of pick a favorite topic of ours and um, you know, my, you know, topic that I really um, you know, have become, you know, more and more passionate about is um you just switching through here is really kind of the form and um, function of rhinoplasty. And so um, this is kind of a snippet from a talk that was given at the rhinoplasty meeting um, in in Orlando a couple of years ago. Um, but I thought it sort of nicely, you know, highlights, you know, what, you know, do we consider to be sort of a, you know, a beautiful nose. And I think that, you know, for, for us, you know, when we look at a nose, you know, patients have their concerns, both functionally and aesthetically, and even their functional patients don't want a larger, less attractive nose. And so it's really our role to want to diagnose the underlying pathology, um, and then to understand how we're going to give them both a functional result and an aesthetically, um, pleasing result. So I've been using the sort of nose scores, you know, for a long time and, um, the uh, that really has helped me to sort of look at my, you know, functional um, patients. Um, and then we sort of, we started using um, several years ago, we started using um, also you know, validated patient report outcome measures, looking at um, nasal appearance in addition to um, their symptoms of nasal obstruction. And obviously we're using this on our aesthetic patients, but really I think where it provides a lot of value is on our functional patients uh, because we want to demonstrate to patients that we can get them breathing better through their nose without a negative aesthetic outcome, because many of patients come to see me and they can't breathe through their nose, but they've been told by their general otolaryngologist or their primary care doctor is like, oh, you don't want to have that, surgi- that surgery because it's going to give you an ugly big nose. And I really don't feel that that's the case. Um, and so we wanted to put some data behind that. And so we were able to use the FACE-Q score and the nose score. Um, this was published several years ago. Um in uh, the facial plastics is that, um, you know, that we can both make patients breathe better through their nose without a negative aesthetic um, outcome. And many of them, in fact, actually have a feel like their nose looks better. And I think as we, this is the, um, you know, satisfaction with um, nose scores. um, And this is just, um, you know, pulled from that um, manuscript you know, where we have patients who this top patient up here um, was very concerned about her aesthetic, but couldn't breathe, but we weren't making any aesthetic changes. And she was could breathe through her nose afterwards, and also was even happier with the appearance of her nose. And this is more of a trauma patient who also couldn't breathe. And, you know, we're Improving her breathing and not making any discrete aesthetic changes, but clearly, you know, functional benefit from correcting, you know, her middle vault narrowing and dorsal deviations. And then, as well, you know, the bottom patient has a very thin, long nose um, and, you know, dorsal hump and narrow middle vault. And so, by making some aesthetic changes, you know, we want to bring down his, you know, dorsal hump to improve the aesthetics of his nose, but we also want to maintain his breathing. Um, and so I think these are, you know, good examples of where we are taking into account both the form and the, the function, um, of the nose.
1: Awesome. I mean, they, they fit hand and glove. I, um, What I find quite interesting is a patient who tries to come in and act as if they have a functional problem, (laughs) but they actually don't have a functional problem. What are your little tricks to catching people out who are trying to cheat the system?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things. I think, you know, one, um, you know, every patient that comes into uh, my clinic gets um, the electronic patient reported outcome measures. So we're collecting, you know, we're collecting the nose scores, we're collecting the face cue scores. We also do some sleep measures and snoring measures as well. So that's one way to sort of assess that. Um, Pre-COVID, we were also doing the um, the PNF or the Peak Nasal Inspiratory Flow Meter on on everyone. I don't think that can really be used as a diagnostic, though it does help kind of pre and post. But I think if you're certainly seeing very large volumes, like, well, they're probably breathing okay. Um, and I think the other is really the, you know, questioning about Breathe Right strips as well as doing sort of the Q-tip maneuver. And if they're really not getting any benefit if you're looking in the nose and the septum straight and you're doing a Q-tip maneuver or asking them about breathe right strips, they're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't really help at all. Um, it really um, calls into question if there is a breathing um, issue or not. I also find the other is true, that patients come in with a functional, of with, you know, an aesthetic concern, and they also you know, have very narrow nasal valves or deviated septum and they just, you know, you look in their nose, you're like, you're probably not breathing all that well. And, but that's the way that they've always been breathing through their nose and they just don't really know. And so I, in those patients, I do sort of explore further and get them to try breathe right strips or try the cute, just to see if they have improvement. And, you know, sometimes there's not a difference and sometimes it's like, wow, that's like so much better. I didn't know I could ever breathe like that. And so I think even in our aesthetic patients, we should still ask those questions about breathing because if we have the opportunity and we're there to make it better, um, you know, we should really fix that as well.
1: And then often what what we find with uh, medical insurance in South Africa, so I'm working in the private sector, not in the state sector. So medical insurance will pay for a functional rhinoplasty and you'd have somebody like that come in and they have now saved up and they want this cosmetic rhinoplasty. And you show them how terribly deviated their septum is, or you do, um, I use rhinometry testing and see that the one nostril is completely blocked and suddenly medical insurance is going to pay for the rhinoplasty and they're very happy with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have to be really careful in the US. And so even if we're doing functional and cosmetic at the same time, think... The. US insurance system's gotten very, very savvy and like they read through our operative notes and so you have to be very careful with discreetly separating out sort of the functional changes from the aesthetic changes. Um, and so we do charge, if there's any cosmetic changes at all, there's always a cosmetic fee associated with that. And so the breathing part will go through insurance, um, and then there will be a cosmetic fee associated um, with any of the discrete cosmetic changes. And so, you know, sometimes if there's a very you know, deviated, you know, dorsal deviation in order to get them breathing better, the nose is going to be straighter. And if that's kind of the only change they want, then that for sort of, I consider that to kind of fall under just the functional operation, because it, I'm not doing anything different, you know. But if they come in and they're like, "Oh, I've got this like hump here, or my tip's a little," you know, if I'm doing those type of tip aesthetics or you know dorsal hump reductions, like that falls into the you know the, the cosmetic realm. And so, just explaining to patients that you know that's that sort of goes outside, not really impacting your breathing, and so we can do it at the same time, but we have to separate that out so the insurance will apply the other. Because what happens in the U.S. is they'll actually deny the whole thing. So if they get an idea that you're trying to do cosmetic changes at the, t- at the time of a functional operation and you're not charging a separate cosmetic fee, they'll actually deny the entire procedure and th- then the patients get a, a giant bill um, from the hospital. So we try to prevent that as much as possible.
1: I mean, I remember when I was studying Ira Popel's facial plastic surgery book for the board exams with one line, just the, the quote that it said, if a man or woman has integrity, Nothing else matters. Yeah. Or if a man or woman does not have integrity, nothing else matters. And yeah. it's so true, you know. If you just make a small little no, it's actually, you know, it's going to come back to bite you as well. Eh?
0: Yeah, and I think that's what where I really learned, and, and it was a little bit of a challenge up front because I, you know, having been and I was in on active duty in the military for twelve years, and so my initial practice started there, and there's no insurance. You know, it's it's a global care. So we're not having to submit to insurance covers like if patients need something, then we fix it. And so, you know, when I came to to Boston and now you're dealing with the pre-certification process and insurance reimbursements, you really have to make sure that, you know, you're documenting, you know, what you see, but also using the terminology um, that, they, that they need for um, approval. And you have to be really, you know, careful with that documentation and really separating out that cosmetic changes from the functional changes because I think the insurance companies are looking for any reason not to approve or not to deny. Um, and, and when I tell patients, like, that's really why it's so important to separate those two out and have a charge the cosmetic is because we don't want um, the functional portion to be denied. And we don't want just kind of globally for all patients who like need that care for insurance companies just to now decide that this is just a cosmetic operation and they're not going to pay for it anymore. So I think it's that stewardish, stewardship that all of us kind of need to be accountable for. Um, I think exactly as in <laughs> the very wise <laughs> Dr. Pavel, like if you have integrity, there's not a problem.
1: <laughs> Tell me, Robin, in terms of CT scans and cone beam CT scans preoperatively. Do you use that in the practice?
0: So I don't. So my practice is is pretty niche at this particular time. And I have a large referral base from general urology and rhinology. And so a lot of the patients have, if they've needed a CT scan for evaluation of the sinuses, I don't typically, they then they already come with them. Um, I don't typically order them, um, preoperatively standardly for patients with nasal obstruction um, and then for ones who've had it preoperatively um, you know through general otolaryngology or rhinology um, you know we definitely don't order them postoperatively um, unless there is um, you know some concern that we're evaluating I think it's a it's a challenge right because I think with CT scans because there is an additional you know radiation dose you know that low The risk, the radiation exposure to a CT scan is about equivalent in the U.S. of flying from, you know, Boston to L.A. and back. So the overall radiation risk is pretty low, um, but we do have to consider that. And and I think that comes into play with sort of some of our computational fluid dynamic modeling where we need the CT scan data um, to do those analyses and even trying to get sort of that through our, you know, institutional review boards. Um, to get approval for research is because that those CT scans do, you know, flag when you're doing them for for research purposes. But um, you know, the consensus statement that was written probably about ten years ago or so um, really kind of tried to suggest you know that you know CT scans were not needed for diagnosis of nasal obstruction because many insurance companies were requiring a CT scan, um, you know, prior. Um, to um, nasal valve um, surgery and sort of trying to move um, away from from that.
1: Okay, so one more question around that is if a patient does have sinus issues and you might have to do some kind of sinus surgery, do you do it at the same setting as the rhinoplasty?
0: So typically, so you know, mass sinir is a very, very niche work environment, and we have lots of rhinologists, and so a lot of those patients are seen by rhinology first and need sinus surgery. So, typically, I will if they need um, if they need sinus surgery and it's not substantial amounts of sinus surgery, we do try to do them at the same time. So, and typically, I always have my rhinology colleague go first because I don't want their scope in the nose after I um, set it. <laughs> it's not just me being nice to let them go first but i think that actually works out quite well um i think a lot of the rhinologists if they're doing kind of an extensive you know sphenoid and frontals and it's going to be a several hour sinus procedure then we'll typically um, stage it and we'll stage it really based upon what the septum looks like so if the septum's looks reasonable and they can do what they need to do then typically they'll go first and then you know we'll bring them back in a month or so for the rhinoplasty portion Um, if they really need the septum corrected beforehand then i'll go first and fix the structure of the nose and then once they heal from that they'll go in and do the sinus surgery
1: awesome okay so there are two last things that i'm quite interested to touch about because you've you've had this incredible career where you're kind of at the pinnacle now still lots to do so on the one side, I wanna know, where do you think rhinoplasty is going? And on the other hand is specifically aimed towards women who are now getting into this. What would your advice be to them? So maybe the first, time is, first question is, how do you see, because COVID's changed so much, education's changed a lot, but where do you possibly see rhinoplasty progressing over the next, say, decade or two decades, being the editor of such a big international journal?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I I think that you know we learn so much from those folks who have been in you know in practice for you know you know longer than you and I, and really you know the way in which we've learned is by you know following you know their outcomes, and you know one of the reasons I got into sort of this patient-reported outcome measures after you know rhinoplasty was. Going to the rhinoplasty meeting, um, you know, sponsored by um, the American Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery. I think back in like you know 2006, and I was just a little bit out of residency. And back then, it was sort of a one room meeting with about 500 people. And and I, the nose score had just started being used by just a couple of people. And I remember you know Dr. Toriyumi, you know, presenting a lateral strut grafts and you know using the score. And I was like, you know what, this is what I want to do. We got to figure this out. We got to figure out like you know. Know, which graft is better than what graft and sort of watching how he had sort of changed his practice over time by following results I was like ah that's what i want to do and so i think you know we all we learn from our own practices and for each other by continuing to follow those outcomes and so i think you know from a photo you know taking really meticulous um you know photo documentation being really honest with yourself about your results of what's working what's not you know listening to your patients and i you know I remember like the placement of a rib graft scar you know initially was sort of described you know by Dr. Gunter being more lateralized and then I realized in my military population like men didn't care if it was on the side or in the front it was a lot easier through a smaller incision if you place it more medial you know and women don't want that incision right in like the inframmary crease because even though it's aesthetically covered up it's uncomfortable um, for them um, you know wearing you know a bra. So placing that a little bit further. So you really learn so much about your patients and don't make lateral curl stuck grafts too long because when people blow their nose, they click, you know.
1: <laughs> but no, I, sorry, I need to stop you there. On this incision for the rib, I've never heard that before. It's always, I've only heard men presenting about where they put the incision. Just remind me again what you said there.
0: Yeah, so, you know, if you talk to women and about the placement of that incision for the rib graft, if you place the incision right in the inframammary crease, it's really uncomfortable when you wear an underwire bra because the bra is sitting right on that incision line um, and it's uncomfortable. And so, especially in women with larger breasts. And so if you drop that scar, that incision line, just down just a few millimeters, they're still able to wear a bathing suit. You can't see it, it heals very well, but they don't have that same discomfort um, postoperatively. So it's a really small, you know, change in your placement that makes a big difference for um, your patients. And, you know, I think things that other, you know, if no with rib grafts is you're not cutting through the muscle, meticulous dividing, and it really just helps so much with the postoperative pain. So I think, you know, learn from your patients, you know, follow your outcomes and, you know, be willing to sort of change your are you really need to change your practice based upon what you're seeing? And I think the hardest thing that we have to do is that, you know, we see these great new techniques and you sort of want to jump on board and try them. And I think the hardest thing to know is like, when do you integrate that into your practice? You know, you're getting really great results in what you're doing. And I think that dorsal preservation, you know, rhinoplasty is just a great topic right now. It's like, okay, wait, I'm getting really good results at the other way. But there's this really exciting new technique. And I really like you know, respect and value the opinion of all these, like, great people who are talking about it. Like, when do I, like, make this, like, transition? And which patients do I start? And how do we follow our outcomes there to make sure that we're actually, you know, getting the outcomes that we think we're doing? And, you know, that's something that we're going to do as a field. And so I think that those are the types of things that over the next 10 years, I think more and more people, you know, secondary to sort of you know, the, these, you know, world rhinoplasty events where you're presenting and it's like, use your outcome measures. I think so many more people are doing that worldwide and we're going to get to learn what other people's results are. And hopefully just being, you know, open and honest, like, you know what? I tried that. Didn't work. (laughs) This seems like it's better. And that's how we're all going to, you know, grow. And at the end of the day, we want to take amazing care of our patients and that's kind of the ultimate goal. And that'll help us to do that.
1: Oh, that's awesome! So, Robin, my last question then for the ladies who are listening to this—I mean, it's great. This you're the first of our four women who's speaking on the leading ladies for the month. Uh, what would you say to the girls out there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that you're, it's absolutely possible to have the career that you want. I think you want to find, you know, mentorship and sponsorship in many different areas. And that's going to be from, you know, women, it's going to be from men, it's going to be from people who may sometimes even be junior to you, they're doing like new, exciting things that they've learned in their training. And so I think if you're always keeping your mind open to sort of learn from all of the folks around you, and then, you know, having sort of your, you know, trusted colleagues that you can really, you know, there's so many of us now that, you know, we all see each other's difficult patients or we can like call them up or text and be like, Oh my God, I got into this situation. You know, what do I do? Or I saw this patient, what's your idea? Or can I come watch you up You know, we can, that's, I think the hard thing with COVID is we haven't been able to come and, you know, visit and watch, but can I come like watch you do that technique before I start? Cause I really want to make sure I understand it before, you know, I integrate that into my, my practice. And so, you know, and some advice that I got from some female surgeons a long time ago at a Leadership meeting was that, you know, when you go to a meeting, you know, go to the meeting and, you know, sit up front, ask questions. And it's amazing how that simple act of like really attending, asking questions, like staying after the coffee break and being brave enough to go like up to folks that you've like admired for so long and have been the names in the textbooks and the chapters and articles and, and just go ask them their opinion. And people really are in this field. They're so lovely and they're so gracious and they're happy to talk with you. And I think that those are the types of things that we've missed more and more in COVID. And so I think, you know, as our world hopefully drips back to some normalcy, that's what I would encourage, you know, folks to do is, you know, don't be afraid to kind of reach out. People really are here and want you to succeed. And it's a great community.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Well, Robin, thanks very much. And to all the listeners out there, thank you for listening. So I'm gonna share now the what you need to do to be able to get some of these cool Pentax Loops at a great discount. So you must go to pentaxloops.com. So that is P-E-N-T-A-X-L-O-U-P-E-S dot com. And send them an email, tell them how much you love listening to the Rhinoplasty podcast with Robin Lindsay, and they'll be able to help you out. So Robin, thank you. So I appreciate your time. Um, wonderful chatting to you. And yeah, just thank you for being the inspiration that you are, not just to the ladies, but to the guys out there. I think it's just fantastic what you're doing. And uh, I would love to come and visit you guys one day once we get over all this COVID. And we'd love to have you in South Africa one day as well.
0: No, absolutely. And take care. And thank you so much for including me in this. I appreciate it, Cameron.